2 Samuel 3 this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, it's interesting as you go through these histories and uh, you see the characters being played out. And really, so much of the, the history as it's described to us and sent out before us is, is described without a lot of comment. I mean, we, we want to moralize, don't we? We read these stories, we want to moralize about these things. And, and honestly, there's something in us that wants some more moralism about it. We want, we want the storyteller to tell us what to think about these things. When, when uh, my kids were little and we'd watch a movie and it would be, you know, two minutes into the movie. Dad, is he the good guy? Dad, is he a good guy? Is, is, he, a good, is he a bad guy, Dad? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? And, and you know, sometimes I couldn't say. Sometimes he, yeah, he's good. He comes out good, but he doesn't do everything that's good. He doesn't do it all the way he should do it. And sometimes he's bad, and, and right there he's a bad guy. He is a good. That was confusing to the kids. He's a good guy. Yes, he's the good. He's the right guy. He's on the right side in this story. But what he just did right there—that was bad. We want everything to be black and white, do we not? We have this inner thing inside of us, this inner black and whiteness that wants the world to be in neat categories, the good over here and the evil over there and a great gulf fixed between them and no crossing over. And then we come to stories in the Bible where who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Really? Who are they? Well, this morning I want to show you some things from 2 Samuel chapter 3. Would you stand with me as we read? We'll read just the first 10 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 3, and then I'll trust you to follow along as I point out various verses. We'll be preaching the whole chapter, and this morning I'll be preaching to you the ugly side of self-will. The ugly side of of self-will. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithraim, by Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. And it came to pass... While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? And was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth? And said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? 
So do God to Abner and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. Let's pray. Now, Lord, as we open the word of God together, first of all, make us grateful for your word. Help us, Lord, that we would be grateful that you lay these things out before us, that you don't hide the, the flaws and the faults in these men, but you tell us the history and tell it to us uh, in a straightforward way. And thank you, Lord, that we can receive instruction from what your word says. And I pray that we would, that we would delight ourselves in your word, that when we leave here, now we would uh, leave having received from your word something good, something great, something glorious. I pray that um, you would uh, help us also, Lord, that we would submit to your word, that when we see very clearly from our word, from your word, a way that our lives are not lining up with what you want, what your expectation is. I pray that we would take steps to make changes so that we would be more and more like Christ all the time. And I pray that our lives would be lived for the advancement of your cause and your kingdom. Please help me as I preach, Lord, especially. I ask that you would speak through me to your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. My title is somewhat facetious, I'll admit. There, it's not, I, I don't know that self-will has a truly attractive side. When I talk about the ugly side of self-will, it seems to be, to be all ugly, um, all over. Um, but I will say that self-will is attractive. That's undeniable. It's attractive to us. All of us, we like to exercise our will and express our will. And we can all be a little bit self-willed when pushed. And in some cases and at some times, self-will is the story of our life. We like to get our way. We all do. And, you know, if the discussion is just a thing between you getting your way and me getting my way, well, then I'll take my way over yours any day. And someone quipped that diplomacy is the art of me letting you get my way. <clears throat> I'm all for getting my way, by the way. Uh, if you want me to have my way, then I want you to have your way. If that's your way. But the outcome, when people operate on the me first principle. It's never pretty. Never pretty. Now, any coach worth his salt will tell you that an ugly win is better than no win at all. Right? And so most are perfectly fine with being a little bit ugly in order to get their way. Because then I win and we can deal with the fallout later on here. But when self-will becomes the operating principle, it won't be long before we have some bloodshed. Blood spilled on the ground. Before the chapter ends, Joab pulled Abner aside at the city gate to speak with him quietly, as verse 27 tells us. 
and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died. And David cursed his commander in chief, Joab, and wept and mourned over Abner and said, these men of Zeruiah be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. And then Joab continued to serve as David's commander for the rest of his life. Isn't that odd? But of course, the point here is not to preach the faults and failures of Abner and Joab and even David. I mean, who doesn't like doing that, right? Who doesn't like to be the genius who can show you everything that was wrong with Abner? Right? I mean, that kind of adds to our credibility a little bit. The fact that I can identify every freckle on his face and tell you how it got there. And when we've identified the problem in someone else's life, do we not tend to walk away with a smug sense of self-righteousness there? Wouldn't it be better for us if we would examine ourselves instead of Joab or Abner or even David? But Joab and Abner are here in the account, and they're here to help us because if we'll look carefully, we'll recognize a little Abner lurking inside of every one of us, a little Joab that shows up once in a while when the time is right. And it's been said that, you know, people are fine with being all about God so long as they are assured that God is all about themselves. And is that not how we are here? The Bible is crammed full of examples of this kind of thing, like an overflowing trash can. I was at a thing not too long ago. There was a meal and the trash cans were full and the trash was stacked on top. And everyone was carefully, including myself, carefully placing their trash on top. I felt really bad for whoever had to empty that trash can uh, on that day. But that's kind of how the trash can of the Bible is crammed full of bad examples of people who were fine with being all about God because they thought God was all about them. And they thought that being all about God would advance them in their priorities, in their plans, in their ideals and dreams. But God is never all about us. God is all about God. And God invites you to participate in that and to be all about God too. And furthermore, your life will not be truly blessed until you are all about God. We just sang it this morning. Psalm 16, 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God is always about displaying his own glory. And most of the time, he makes it shine in contrast to human fallenness and depravity. So we see self-will on display throughout this chapter, starting with Abner. 
We're tempted to sympathize with Abner as if Abner got a raw deal here. Now, whether the claim about his relations with Saul's former concubine are true or not, I cannot say for sure. I've studied the passage and looked at it carefully, and I notice that the Bible, often when the Bible introduces an accusation like this, it will start by telling you that Abner had carnal intercourse with Rizpah, but it doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't actually tell us if Abner did this, whether this was a false accusation or not. The Bible does nothing, says nothing to substantiate the charge. And Abner himself was having none of it. And of course, Abner was murdered by Joab as well, right? So that makes him even more a sympathetic figure. Anyone who's familiar with 2 Samuel probably has a little bit of a bad taste in their mouth about Joab. He's not uh, all that, you know, tall, dark and godly kind of guy that we like to admire in the word of God. And David, of course, went all out to mourn for Abner, as we see at the end of this chapter. He mourned extensively for him, even wrote a eulogy about him to honor him and to condemn Joab. So we think of Abner as Joab's victim. But don't forget that Ishbosheth was a king entirely void of ambition or gumption whatsoever. If it had been left up to Ishbosheth, he probably would have stayed on the couch with his video games and spent out the rest of his days uh, eating snacks and Doritos and, and watching videos and so on. <clears throat> Ishbosheth's weakness and vacillation probably put Israel in a great deal of jeopardy. You know, imagine, imagine if your country was ruled by a guy who couldn't find his way from the bedroom to the closet. Imagine that. Imagine if he needed handlers and Easter bunny outfits to run an interference for him in case someone asked him a hard question. <clears throat> now there's really only one reason why Joe Ishbosheth became king. And it had nothing to do with shenanigans surrounding the ballot box. <clears throat> it was all Abner. Abner made Ishbosheth king. And Abner didn't crown Ishbosheth out of ignorance. He knew very well that God anointed David to be Israel's next king. He says so, in fact, in this passage. But Abner, of course, wasn't ready to give up power yet. And thanks to Ishbosheth, Abner found, in fact, he had more power after Saul was dead than he had before Saul died. And as you read this passage, you see how Abner is maneuvering here to make sure that he retains his closeness, his nearness, his position with the king. He's ready to switch his allegiances, but he wants to do it on his terms. Abner wants to make sure that Abner stays in power. And that's what's happening right here. 
So while the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker, as verse 1 says, Abner grew stronger and stronger. When verse 6 says that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul, it means that Abner was the one who was gathering power, strengthening his own hand and using the house of Saul to do it. And the weaker Ishbosheth became, the more Abner flexed. And that's what's happening right here. When he took liberties with Rizpah, he had a smug sense of entitlement to this little dalliance. And you know that because of the way he responded when Ishbosheth confronted him about it. Now let me pause to say. That even though the passage does not lay the charge at Abner's feet, there's no reason to think that Ishbosheth made up this particular rumor uh, or was simply making an accusation against Abner for political purposes. It would be entirely out of Ishbosheth's character to do such a thing. Ishbosheth was non assertive, he was a non combatant. In the war, for for sure, right here. Ishbosheth was barely capable of confronting Abner at all. And when Abner feigned outrage, verse 11 tells us that Ishbosheth folded like a cheap suit right there on, on the spot. Now, you should know that Abner's affair with the concubine was not just a little extracurricular activity on a Friday night. It was political. And this is what you need to understand. Taking the king's wives was considered to be the right of the throne. The new king, when he displaced or replaced the old king, took, claimed the old king's harem. Now that may be disgusting and vile to us, and really offend our sensibilities in this enlightened day and age. But you need to know that this is the way the kings of the world operated in the days of David and Saul and so on. That's why Absalom, when he drove his father out of the kingdom, pitched a tent on the palace roof and in the presence of all Israel brought in the king's concubines and slept with all of them in a public display that he was the new cockle-doodle-doo in town, if you will. By going into Rizpah, Abner was asserting his own claim to the throne. And by this time, it was really nothing but a formality that kept Ishbosheth on the throne at all. And as weak and vacillating as Ishbosheth was, he knew that if he didn't speak up now, it was done. And so he said something. <coughs> but this is where it gets interesting. Ishbosheth's on the throne because Abner put him there. Ishbosheth is maintained. His throne is upheld. 
really on the strength of Abner. So Abner really he's he's inching towards claiming this throne himself. Why doesn't he just take it? I think in the back of Abner's mind, he knew it couldn't be his. He knew, of course, he knew that God had anointed David. And there's just enough fear in Abner that prevents him from usurping the throne altogether. Abner lacked the courage to go to war against David. And he knew that that was what he would have to do. Now, it could be that he was still stinging from the defeat he suffered in chapter 2. But more than likely, Abner's hesitance had to do with Ishbosheth. Because despite his obvious weakness, Ishbosheth still had the strength to confront Abner over the Rizpah affair. By not rolling over, Ishbosheth probably kept Abner from claiming the throne outright. It's a strange thing. But even the most unprincipled men sometimes still have their scruples. And somehow, Abner just couldn't take the throne from Ishbosheth, his nephew. When he saw that Ishbosheth didn't <clears throat> plan to give him the throne, wasn't about to concede the throne to Abner, well then, Abner took a step to protect himself. He contacted David with an offer. Now, this wasn't a principled offer, despite Abner's sudden concern with God's will. Isn't that interesting? How when people begin to rebel against God, they all of a sudden become very pious and start quoting scripture at you in defense of their rebellion against God. I've seen it happen multiple times. And that's what Abner does right here as well. All of a sudden, after, after several years of ignoring God's clear, revealed will, because God himself anointed David king, all of a sudden now, when Ishbosheth confronted Abner about the Rizpah affair, now Abner is concerned with honoring God and making sure that David becomes the king. And he now wants to make sure that God's word is followed. <clears throat> Abner wanted what was best for Abner. And when Ishbosheth didn't provide what was best for Abner, well then, he turned to David. It's funny how loyalty tends to go with whoever's offering me the best deal. Right? Now, <clears throat> I have no problem with that, no objection to it whatsoever. If we're talking about restaurants, grocery stores, cell phone providers, and so on. But when it comes to Christ and his kingdom, there is no room for deal making and political maneuvering like Abner used. Still, Abner vowed to make God's word come true for David. The 12th verse says that Abner sent messengers to David 
on his behalf. On whose behalf? Not on David's behalf. Certainly not on Ishbosheth's behalf. But on Abner's behalf. <clears throat> and Abner let it be known that he was ready to make a deal. Make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. Now, promises, promises, right? Oh, now you're going to make me the king, huh, Abner? That's what David or Abner was saying. David, you need me, he says, and I can do this for you. Only <clears throat> David has a lot of political savvy. He knows how the land lay. He knows the game that's being played right here. He has a lot more wisdom than what Abner or anyone else gives him credit for. And so David made a demand. A demand that he said had to be fulfilled before he would talk to Abner. Now you might remember during the years when David was fleeing from Saul, one of the things that Saul did to David was to give his daughter Michael to another man in marriage. Now, these are thorny issues, so understand that. But David did not divorce Michael. Even though she married another man with her father's blessing, she was not divorced from David. David had a right to Michael, which he states his right to Michael. In his demand, he purchased her with a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now you remember that that was the price that Saul placed on his daughter, the dowry that was to be paid, which David paid and exceeded because he gave 200 foreskins of the Philistines, which means that 100 of them were just a gift to honor King Saul as his father-in-law to go the extra mile and the first hundred. But understand that it cost David something. I mean, he had to go to war, go to battle with the Philistines in order to obtain those foreskins of the Philistines uh, and give them to King Saul. And so David declared his right to Michael here. And then he said in verse 13, Well, I will make a league with thee, but one thing I require of thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. And then... David went over Abner's head. Believe me when I say this, that this was intentional on David's part. <clears throat> David went directly to Ishbosheth and demanded the return of Michael. Verse <clears throat> uh, the next, I think, verse 14. And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son saying, Deliver me my wife Michael, which I espoused to me for an hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now, some have suggested that Abner worked the deal with Ishbosheth for his sister to be returned, that there was this like behind the scenes, under the table deal making that was happening between David and Abner. And 
And Abner was now loyal to David and is going to subvert the kingdom for David's sake. I just say that, first of all, that doesn't seem consistent with David. He was not a conniver of any sort at all. And secondly, I, I really think that to do so would be to empower Abner more than what David was willing to empower him. <clears throat> it would be easy enough for the Bible to tell us that Abner was behind the scenes brokering this deal, lobbying for Michael to be returned to David. But the Bible doesn't say that. David went to Ishbosheth, demanded her return, and Ishbosheth sent her back. And it's interesting, when he sent her back, Abner was in charge of the detail to return her. So Abner is still acting as Ishbosheth's servant. See, there's a reason I believe it's working this way. David understands leverage. He knows when men want access. He's shown a clear pattern of recognizing when men want access to him, and he refuses to do it, to give it. And so what David does is to make Abner the middleman, not the power broker. But David also knows the way marriage works in his time, especially among kings. Marriages are more about alliances, about uniting households. If David is able, now now get this, because in the first few verses, the Bible describes, tells us, names in fact, six sons of David by six different wives. If David is able to raise up a seventh son from the house of Saul, well then, he will have united his house to the house of Saul. Remember, he is Saul's son-in-law, right? And that would help to make his case with the ten northern tribes. But Abner, Abner's smart too. And he doesn't give up so easily. He understands leverage and he keeps searching for that elusive crack where he can stick in the pry bar and make a little space for himself right next to David. Once Michael has returned to David, Abner shows up in Hebrew. In fact, it seems like Abner personally delivered Michael to David and then hung around. All right, let's make a deal. We've met your demands. Now let's make a deal. And Abner started lobbying with the elders of Israel in verse 17 to go ahead and make David your king. In verse 19, he made his case with the men of Benjamin and with David himself. And notice that Abner is working hard to broker this deal, to deliver the kingdom to David. And Abner also spake in the ears of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron. All that seemed good to Israel and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. And after David threw him a feast, Abner promised, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desireth. All very noble. 
All very good. All for the kingdom. Right? All for the kingdom. If we didn't know everything else, we might be tempted to think so. But surely we all know the way that we can be ambitious for the cause of Christ when it has some impact on our own quality of life. How easily we turn mercenary with the things of God. I don't mean to be cynical here. I just know that I have lived with one particular sinner for lo these many years, and I have seen the way that sinner operates, and that sinner is not my wife, it is myself. I can become very pious when it becomes necessary to advancing my own reputation. If it helps others to become impressed with me or to notice what a wise and godly preacher I really am or especially to flatter me, I am all the more likely to be very bold for the sake of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, In my personal devotions and personal life, God confronted me with the fact that a whole lot of what I did had a whole lot to do with advancing myself and impressing people rather than with the glory and honor of God. And I repented of that. And I sought to change it. And I can honestly say that I have tried more and more To operate as a follower of Christ committed to his kingdom rather than as someone seeking to promote myself. But then another opportunity comes on a weekly basis to stand in front of the church and preach a message. A message that I hope will impress you with my piety and my deep devotion to the Lord and my skill and ability as a preacher. And I come in thinking so-and-so is going to really like this part. And I can't wait to deliver this point. Will, Will they not be wowed by it? And I think to myself, what a wretch. What a wretch. I'd love to escape it. It feels like I can't. How do we eliminate the Abner in our heart? Let me tell you, we don't do it the way Joab did it. I want to talk about Joab for a moment. Dale Davis points out that in three consecutive verses, we're told that David sent Abner away and he went in peace. In verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23, all three verses right in a row, the same phrase is used again and again to show you essentially that David guaranteed Abner safe passage. That's what was happening right here. Abner came with his offer to broker a deal for the kingdom and David gave him, granted him safe passage. This would uh, explain why in verse 26, Abner naively came back 
when Joab sent for him. Because look, these were wild times. I have said this before. What's unique about the Old Testament in that day and age is that God provided for cities of refuge where if you accidentally killed someone, you could flee to a city of refuge and you could then be granted safety and peace. Because there was a law. Your near kinsman was duty bound to avenge your death if someone killed you. (coughs) And in the ancient world, that, uh, the term escapes me, but that, that blood avenging, that blood vengeance was a ruthless, relentless, and endless process. There was no end to it. If, if you and, and my brother were out cutting down trees and you chopped the tree down and it fell on my brother and he died, I was duty-bound to hunt you down and kill you. And when I did, your brother was duty-bound to hunt me down and kill me. And it just went back and forth and back and forth And if you don't believe me, read the Iliad and the Odyssey, which is all about that. Whole wars fought over these kinds of things. Abner, of course, lived in that day. He knew very well the custom. So it would not be a shock to Abner that Joab would be trying to kill him, except that David had guaranteed Abner, safe passage. He he feels secure. Which tells you the terrible, terrible treachery of Joab. Because it wasn't just that Joab, under the guise of friendship with Abner, taking him aside to speak to him privately, quietly, killed him. But that Joab relied on David's guarantee in order to, he exploited it, in order to get access to Abner. And of course, we know that Joab was not justified in murdering Abner. First of all, Abner, when he killed Joab's brother Asael, Abner tried to warn him away repeatedly. And secondly, the reason Abner killed Asael is because they were in a battle and Asael was chasing him because Abner knew that if he didn't kill Asael, Asael was going to kill him. It isn't murder when it's war. And thirdly, we know that Joab murdered Abner because David declared it. Three times, in fact, in verse 28 and 29, he said so. In verse 34, he said so. In verse 39, he said so. And at the end of his life, David said that Abner shed the blood of war in peace. First Kings chapter two and verse five. But of course, the way Joab justifies it is he makes it all about justice. It was It was righteous on his part. Only we suspect that there might have been more to it than more than meets the eye here. 
Because Abner came to David with an offer to unite the two kingdoms. You know, Joab is a powerful man in David's kingdom. David's rising kingdom. And Joab sees a great future, upward mobility for himself in this budding kingdom of David, right? He's the commander in chief. Only the one card that Joab does not hold is the ability to broker peace between the 10 northern tribes and the tribe of Judah. Joab has no ability to do that, and Abner does. And in the dog-eat-dog competitive world of corporate politics, the guy that holds the cards and knows how to play those cards is going to get a good deal for himself. And so Joab sees a rival in Abner. Oh, I mean, I'm not denying that Joab loved his brother, but I'm saying that Joab is about Joab more than he is about a sale. Certainly more than he is about David or the kingdom of Israel. Notice verses 24 and 25, the way Joab tries to poison the well against Abner. It isn't lost on Joab that David sent Abner away and granted him safe passage. So clearly Joab feels a little threatened by Abner. He detects a rival here. David is never completely sold on Joab. I pointed out to you when we talked about Joab in the past that when David's mighty men are named, Joab is nowhere on the list. Joab's brothers, Abishai and Asael, are both listed among David's mighty men, but Joab is not. In fact, later on, David tried to replace Joab, and Joab, by the way, dispatched of that rival the same way he did of Abner. So maybe there's a little more than meets the eye right here. I find it interesting that Joab, after he murdered Abner, Joab doesn't protest when David makes him tear his clothes and wear sackcloth and mourn over Abner's death. Look at verse 31. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the buyer. Now the before there, mourn before Abner, would seem to indicate that Joab actually led, he was required by David in his torn clothes and in his sackcloth and in his show of mourning was required to lead the funeral procession for Abner. And David honored Abner greatly by following along behind. For Joab, well, first of all, none of this seems to bother Joab at all. He's, He's perfectly willing to do all of that. For Joab, it was all about commanding David's army. It was, it was all about his position. And Joab wasn't threatened by anything that David 
required him to do. He wasn't threatened by what David said. David condemned him, condemned what he had done, openly condemned it. Joab just rolls off his back. Long as I have my position, I don't condemn me all you want. He held the power. And after he killed Abner, his grip on that power, on that position, strengthened. And what about us? Don't we all also have a little Joab marching around inside our own hearts? The 12 disciples asked the most audacious question. They had the most audacious debate on the night Jesus was arrested. I'm ashamed to say it. They debated who would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Can you believe it? None of us would be so bold-faced as to join a debate like that. Though I'm sure we've all had thoughts of our own grandeur, our own greatness in the kingdom. I know I have. You know, the old-time fundamental pastors, they're so angry and harsh and arrogant and obnoxious. And me and pastors like me, we're working hard to change all of that, to make up for their deficiencies. I flatter myself, of course, that it's all about Christ and his kingdom and not about my legacy or my brand. Maybe Joab told himself that he was so loyal to David, so committed to the kingdom of Israel that he would gladly sacrifice his own reputation in order to eliminate that deceiver, Abner, because he was a wicked man, unlike Joab, right? He was ambitious, unlike Joab. But how easy it is to argue for David and act like Joab. I hope I'm all about Christ, but that hope is often tainted by my desire to advance my own legacy and build my own brand. All we can do is pray, Lord, please deliver me from this self-will, self-righteousness. We have one more example of the ugly side of self-will that we need to consider before we finish this chapter. I noticed something about David. Yes, David. David David is an example of the way when we get a hero of the faith, we defend everything he does. And everything done against him is done by the enemy. No doubt about it. But I noticed something about David in this passage. It starts with the rehearsal of the six sons by six different wives. In the ancient world, the strength of a man's kingdom was measured by the number and the beauty and the importance of his wives and the number of sons that they bore to him as well. 
As far as that goes, David was off to a pretty good start. In Hebron, before he became Israel's king, the total land of Israel, he already had seven wives, if you count Michael, and six sons. And of course, the narrator lists these sons and wives immediately after telling us that David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And so here's the evidence that the house of David, the star is rising. When we come to the house of Saul in verse 6, it isn't Ishbosheth who's having lots and lots of wives and sons. In fact, Abner is taking over the harem. But something bothers me about all of this. Maybe it bothers you too. I understand the way the culture looked at this at that time. And I understand that, you know, we've got to look at it through the lens, at least, of that culture at that time. We have to set it in its historic concept if we really want to understand it. And I get it that for David, it was probably expedient and a little bit pragmatic on his part to follow the culture and take these wives. Miaka, the, the, the mother of Absalom, uh, was the daughter of a king. A king, by the way, who had a small kingdom right there in, on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in the place that we know of as uh, Bethsaida uh, today. Bethsaida or Bethesda. Uh, but right up there... Really, where all the disciples came from, uh, there are still the ruins of that kingdom, still visible to this day, have been uncovered that you can visit to this day. And so, David is definitely forming alliances by means of these marriages. But still, I, I just can't get past the fact that when God in Deuteronomy, in the time of Moses, long before. David came on the scene. God gave instructions to his people about their kings. They were not to acquire horses. They were not to accumulate lots of gold and silver. And they were not to accumulate wives. God said, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart Turn not away. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Now, of course, the narrator isn't telling us any of this in order to point the finger at David or to moralize or to accuse David at all or to offer moral judgment or condemnation of what David did here. If anything, the narrator is defending David in this story. Look at the great lengths that the narrator goes to to show you that David was not complicit in the murder of Abner, that David was free of blood guiltiness when it came to the, to the house of Abner. The murder of Abner. Still, it seems like David is making decisions here to advance himself, to pad his own resume, to show in very earthly terms his own qualifications to be king. 
Now, I'm not going to take the time to point out the trouble that these sons, these sons, born to him in Hebron, caused him later in his life. You probably know about Amnon who forced his sister Tamar. You probably know, you must know about Absalom who stole the hearts of the people away from David. Adonijah also tried to usurp the throne from David at the end of his life. David's pragmatic plan certainly cost him. He paid a heavy toll. It seems to me that David didn't trust the Lord to give him the kingdom. Didn't trust the Lord entirely to make him great. David thinks he has to do what the culture does. Follow what the culture says. But that isn't all that troubles me in this passage. I can't help but notice the way David condemns Joab, curses Joab, humiliates Joab, makes Joab mourn publicly for the man he murdered. And don't think that wasn't political either, David's mourning for Abner. Surely, surely David was not this fond of Abner that he would eulogize him and throw this huge show of mourning. Surely David didn't think that Abner was pure as the driven snow. Here's what I noticed, though. David curses, condemns, humiliates Joab, but there are no consequences. Not really. No consequences for Joab. Could it be, is it possible that David thought Joab would be very useful to me in my kingdom? These men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me, he says in verse 39. Someone said once, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. This, these hard sons of Zeruiah had one, one uh, quality that commended them to David. They were great on the battlefield. They were mighty warriors. And David knew that he was going to need a ruthless guy like Joab fighting on his side. In our old house just down the street here, we had a neighbor move in. He was tattooed from the crown of his head down. I mean, we saw enough of, you know, like he'd walk around in a pair of shorts and nothing else. He was tattooed all over, everywhere. Gangster tattoos. He told me when he moved in that he was, he had been in a gang. He had done jail time. He wanted me to know that right away. Super friendly guy. We made sure to keep good friendships and good relationships with him because I thought, you know, if anybody should mess with the neighborhood, I want him on my side and not against me right there. And these sons of Zeruiah were nothing if not loyal. It's a strange thing with Joab, but he was extremely loyal to David. Do you think... Do you think it's possible that David was thinking of himself when he condemned Joab and then let it go? 
when you're in leadership, some of this can become a temptation. Cut corners, take shortcuts, preach against certain things because we have to preach against those things. But secretly tolerating them as well. Because, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we need that kind of junk going for us, working for us. That's why I'll hear pastors preach and teach plainly against pragmatism and carnal weaponry and contemporary worship, which all kind of go together. And then, lo and behold, they use a style of worship that I can only describe as contemporary. What about me? What about me? Because I can point the finger at everybody else, but... Have I turned a blind eye to sinful behavior that would cost me too much to confront? I know that I have. This must not be so. Our chapter opens with David waxing stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxing weaker and weaker. It ends with David crying out from his weakness. And I am this day weak, though anointed king, he says. And in between, we see at least three different flavors of self-will put on display. Second Samuel 3 shows us the ugly side of self-will. Are we not convicted for our own self-will and self-glory? Lurking in our own hearts, do we not see it? There. But remember, and this is where I want to close. Remember that these historical books are not about David. They are not about Joab. They are not about Abner. They are not about Saul. They are not about Samuel. They are not about Absalom. They are not about Solomon. These historical books are about God. And what you see is men behaving like men. Throughout. And despite all the jockeying and political maneuvering that's taking place here, there's one truth that I hope will be pounded into your mind as we go through 2 Samuel. One consistent thing God does what he said he'd do, God made David king of Israel. He made him the king. David was conniving. David himself was setting things up for himself. But God didn't say, fine, if you're going to behave that way and you don't trust me, I'm taking it away. No. God had committed not only to give the kingdom to David, but through David to bring a Messiah into the world and God does what he said he'd do. God rules and overrules in our world, regardless of the kinds of numbskulls he has to work with. So much mess could be prevented if we just followed the Lord and trusted the Lord and didn't try to advance our cause or make things work out really wonderfully for ourselves. But we go our own way, right? We go our own way. 
And that's why we stand in constant need of a Savior. And the only Savior, not David, but Jesus. Jesus, who is constantly working to bring us to a place of purity and sanctification, to teach us to overcome these failures in the self-serving way that we go about our lives, to deliver us, to expose it to us, and then to teach us to repudiate it, to turn from it and turn to the Lord. May we all follow Christ without guile, without pretending, without self-seeking, without self-deception.